Saving money on exterior wall lights. Now at Menards. Find your style with Patriot Lighting. Exterior lights enhance the look of your home. Choose from over 50 options from Patriot Lighting. Now through May 19th, get $10 instant savings on a single qualifying purchase of $100 or more on in-stock outdoor wall lights. Check out our entire selection of outdoor lights and see the rest of our deals happening now on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Chapter 13 Anubis and the King Howard Carter and his team worked in the burial chamber for months. From December 1923 to October 1926, work proceeded in Tutankhamun's House of Gold, the Per en Nebu. That was a long time, certainly the longest period devoted to a single room in the tomb. To be clear, they did not work day in, day out, every month and year. The excavation went in seasons, generally 8 to 12 weeks during the Egyptian winter. And between December 1923 and October 1926, there were various disputes that interrupted the work. Those are stories for the future. The point is, Carter spent a long time in the burial chamber alone. It makes sense. Tutankhamun's shrines, sarcophagus, coffins, mask, and mummy are standout items. Each one required special care and attention. So, we can understand. But still, imagine the relief when, finally, they finished this room. On the 23rd of October, 1926, Howard Carter and his colleagues returned the mummy of Tutankhamun to its sarcophagus. Ever since the discovery, it was Carter's wish, and Lord Carnarvon's, that Tutankhamun remain in his tomb. The king should not go to Cairo or any museum. He should lie as he was found in the burial chamber. To do that, the excavators cleaned and restored his coffin, the first or largest coffin. They placed that in the sarcophagus, and then laid the mummy within. In short, Carter and his team gave Tutankhamun a second burial. Having discovered the tomb intact, they felt it was proper to keep Tutankhamun there. Remarkably, the king remains in his tomb to this day. He has only left a few times for scientific studies. For the most part, Tutankhamun sleeps in his chambers. Now, with the burial chamber complete, Carter could move on. There were two more rooms to study. The most important was the treasury. The treasury is a small chamber, just east of the burial chamber. If you were looking at Tutankhamun's mummy, the treasury is by his feet. It is a square room, undecorated. And glancing inside, it may not seem important. But bear with me, this hall is significant. In a normal tomb, a king's burial chamber would be large, much larger than Tutankhamun had. And a traditional burial chamber would have many items, not just the sarcophagus, shrines, and coffins. Compared to most, Tutankhamun's burial chamber is tiny, so the mourners had to make do with the space available. That meant certain objects, normally intended for the burial chamber, wound up in the treasury. Sacred items, like the canopic jars, which held Tutankhamun's organs, were supposed to rest beside the sarcophagus. 
but due to the limited space, the tomb of Tutankhamun has them slightly further away. Again, that may not sound important, but it is. The position of objects and their relationship to one another was significant for the Egyptians. As we will see in this chapter, the treasury and its items actually filled a vital role in the pharaoh's afterlife. So this unobtrusive room is more important than it seems. The treasury had a significant function, and we will explore that. In antiquity, the room that we call the treasury was known as the Per Hedge. That translates as House of Silver, or Treasury, a place to store valuables, especially metal. So out of all of the rooms in Tutankhamun's burial, the treasury has the most accurate name, the one closest to its ancient equivalent. As you can imagine from the name, this treasury was full of treasures. When Howard Carter entered the room, he gazed on a vast array of objects. Hundreds of items piled up around the walls. There were boats, made of wood, for carrying souls to the afterlife. There were small shrines covered in gold, which held statues of the gods. There were chariots for transport, weapons for hunting, shabti figurines, who would do work on behalf of Tutankhamun. And there were items of religious symbolism. We will cover all of those in a moment. First, Carter's attention fell on the centre of the room. Two items dominated this space. In the back, a great shrine of wood and gold glittered in the light. It had elaborate decorations, and four goddesses, one on each side. This shrine held Tutankhamun's canopic jars, the vessels in which his organs, his viscera, were preserved. In front of the canopic shrine, just by the door, there was a wooden podium. It had two carrying poles for lifting on the shoulders of priests. On top of this podium, a magnificent statue guarded the room. The statue was a canine, either a jackal or a wolf. It lay atop the podium, with its tail hanging down the back. Of course, this statue was Anubis, guardian of the dead, lord of embalming. From this podium, the great god would protect Tutankhamun's house of silver, the treasury of his tomb. So, to begin, Carter's attention was drawn to two objects in particular, the great shrine holding the canopic jars, and the statue of Anubis. Let's start with Anubis. Beside the door, and partially blocking it, Anubis rested on his shrine. The god's statue is carved from wood. It has a thin layer of plaster on top, and the surface is painted black. Anubis has eyes made of gold, with calcite and obsidian inlays. His toenails are silver, but slightly corroded when discovered. His tail hangs down the back of the podium, and he wore a bunch of accessories. When discovered, the Anubis statue had a scarf around his neck. He wore a wreath of flowers on top of that scarf. And over his body, the ancients had draped a shroud, a large piece of linen wrapped around the god. At least, it looked like a shroud. But on closer inspection, this linen turned out to be a shirt, a piece of clothing that was adapted for the god. This shirt is interesting, and I'll come back to it later. For now, let's stick with Anubis. The god rested on a large shrine. It kind of looks like a pylon, 
one of the enormous towers that appear in Egyptian temples. This pylon shrine was decorated, and it was hollow. When opened, the shrine contained jewellery, shabti figures, amulets, artificial food, and various trinkets. A curious collection of ancient bric-a-brac. What is the significance? Well, Howard Carter thought the items might relate to the mummification and funeral for Tutankhamun. That would make sense. After all, Anubis was the lord of mummification. His shrine would be a valuable symbol in those kind of events. So perhaps this object related to the king's mummification, and to his funeral ceremonies. Anubis is beautiful, and a famous image from the tomb. But there's not a lot to say about it in terms of history. It's a lovely object, well made and beautifully decorated. And later, we'll discuss some of those accessories, which were quite interesting. But for now, let's move on. The treasury's primary focus was a shrine made of wood and gold. It stood by the eastern wall, aka the direction of sunrise, and it served a special function. The shrine was the house for Tutankhamun's canopic jars. These are the vessels containing and preserving his organs. Canopic jars are famous, they often show up in mummy films. Well, Tutankhamun has a particularly beautiful set, and the shrine protected them. The canopic shrine comes in four parts. First, a large canopy made of wood and gold, standing on four pillars. Then, a smaller shrine fits underneath and fills the centre. The canopy and the shrine both rest on a sled. And on each side of that sled, the statue of a goddess stands guard. The goddesses look mostly the same, but they have symbols attached to their heads. From these, we can identify them as Isis, or Aset, Neftis, Nebethut, Neith, Net, and Selket, or Serket. These are the same deities who appear on Tutankhamun's sarcophagus, his coffins, and his funeral shrines. So there is a theme here. When it came to the king's body, and his organs, four great goddesses acted as protectors. Isis, Nephthys, Neith, and Selket are prominent in the tomb. Each goddess wears a long gown, draping off the shoulders and down the body. They have wigs, or headdresses, shaped like pouches. We call these the cart, or bag headdress. Their eyes are bright, with thick black ink marking the details and the eyeliner. They stand in identical poses. Each goddess stands with her body facing towards the shrine, but they turn their heads to the left, as if watching for danger. Atop their heads, the golden symbols mark their identity. Selket wears a scorpion, Isis wears a throne, and so forth. Basically, they have the hieroglyphs for their names on top of their heads. An ancient name tag, if you will. So the goddesses stand beneath the canopy, guarding the canopic shrine. The shrine itself is distinctive. It is a tall, rectangular box, covered with gold. It bears cobras, or uraei, at the top, and columns of hieroglyphs on the sides that give speeches from various gods. We have pictures and texts related to the gods who protect the canopic jars. Each jar, and each organ, was connected with a specific deity, and those beings appear on the shrine to speak for Tutankhamun. So this golden box includes images and hieroglyphs, protecting the contents. 
Add the goddess statues on the outside, and you have two layers of security. Visually, the shrine is beautiful, but it's not perfect. Like other items in the tomb, this shrine bears traces of a hasty and careless construction. We particularly see it with the goddesses. Each deity, Selket, Neith, Nephthys, and Isis, had a symbolic orientation. What I mean is, each goddess was associated with a particular direction. For example, Nephthys was connected with the south, Selket was connected with the east. So, ideally, their figures should appear on the appropriate sides of the shrine. Unfortunately, the carpenters who erected this shrine inside the tomb were a bit careless. When they attached the goddess figures to the sled, they made a mistake. Selket wound up on the south, in the place where Nephthys should go. Likewise, the carpenter put Nephthys on the east, the place where Selket should go. So they accidentally swapped two of the deities. This is a genuinely careless mistake. Whoever put this item together did not do their job properly. You see, the shrine has texts and images that identify the location of each goddess. So the pictures on the shrine should have told the carpenter where to put the deity. In theory, the artisan could have just looked at the decoration and followed the instructions. But they didn't, and as a result, two of the four goddesses are mismatched. It may seem trivial, but that could be significant. Because each goddess had a direction, they also had a role associated with that direction. Selkit and Nephthys both had a job in the afterlife, and if they were in the wrong place, they might have trouble fulfilling their duties. If so, that could cause problems for Tutankhamun in the next world. We can only hope that they sorted it out, that Selkit and Nephthys got in touch and figured out what happened. If they did, I imagine they had some choice words for their careless carpenter. Inside the shrine, there was a box. It was made of stone, carved and decorated. Inside this box, there were four jars, also made of stone. Each jar had a lid, carved to resemble the pharaoh. And inside those jars, there were small golden coffins. These are Tutankhamun's canopic vessels. They held his organs, the viscera from his body. And on their bodies, the tiny coffins had texts identifying their contents. Inside this chest, archaeologists found Tutankhamun's liver, his lungs, stomach, and intestines. Each organ was mummified, wrapped in linen, and covered with resin or oil. But they survived in reasonable condition. So Tutankhamun's viscera remained intact. They could serve him in eternity. These canopic jars, particularly the little coffins, are curious. Their design and decoration raises some interesting questions. Again, I'll come back to that later in the episode. For now, let's move on and see some of the other items that filled this treasury. The Anubis statue and the Canopic shrine are the glamour pieces from this room, but there are some really interesting items in here. They don't get as much attention, so I'd like to spend a moment talking about them. First, we have a curious little piece. In the southwest corner of the treasury, 
on the right when you come through the door, Carter found a long wooden box. The box contained a frame made of wood and filled with mud. The frame had arms, legs, a crown, and royal scepters. Or at least, it had the silhouette of those things. The wooden frame looked like a stencil, a cut-out shape resembling a deity. That deity was Osiris. What Carter found was a sort of flower bed or planter box. It was made of wood, but hollow, and it was shaped like the king of the dead. Osiris, the lord of agriculture, master of fertility, eternal king of the underworld. Inside this frame, the ancients placed mud from the Nile, and they planted seeds into that mud. With a bit of water drizzled over the top, the seeds would germinate, they would grow, sending up shoots of green. After a few days, this Osiris bed would fill with new growth. It was a symbolic item, but what does it mean? Osiris is king of the dead, we all know that, but he is also the lord of renewal. The cycle of life, of birth, growth, death, and rebirth, came under his authority. It applied to humans, and spirits, and it applied to nature. Plants and animals would grow and die within Osiris' power. In short, the king of the dead was also a king of life. New life, born from death. He is the original lord of resurrection. To capture that idea physically, the Egyptians created these Osiris beds. The small boxes, filled with mud and seeds, would germinate and sprout. So even in the tomb, the seeds would bring forth new life. This meant that Tutankhamun's crypt would slowly bear new growth. In the dark underground, life would emerge again. This process would connect Tutankhamun with the great god, and it helped to capture the idea that life and death were part of an infinite cycle. I have said before that the ancient Egyptians were not obsessed with death, they were obsessed with life, and they wanted it to continue forever. But they recognised that life and death are connected, so the priests figured out a solution. The power of Osiris would connect the dead with the living. Through these small boxes filled with growth, all things could flourish in eternity. The Osiris bed is a curious object, but it's a remarkable one. Looking at it, it doesn't seem like much, but beneath the surface, there is a whole mess of theological ideas. This strange little box captures a powerful sense of Egyptian beliefs. The eternity of nature, the renewal of life, and the emergence of new growth out of death. All that was contained in a strange wooden frame. After the Osiris box, there were a variety of miscellaneous objects. I won't get into all of them, but some are noteworthy. First, there were statues. Tiny golden images filled the treasury. There were statues of gods like Ptah, the lord of artisans, Sakmet, the lady of destruction, Geb, lord of the earth, Hapi, lord of the Nile flood, Isis, the mother, Horus the great, or Horus the Elder, and, of course, Atum, the lord of creation, the one who is all. 
These were mighty beings whose power filled and shaped the cosmos. They were gods whom Tutankhamun had honoured in his reign, and given new life when he commissioned statues for their temples. Now, a huge gathering of deities followed the king into the afterlife. They would be his entourage in the next world. So Tutankhamun had a whole collection of divine statues. These would associate with the gods and bring them in his following. The king was going to have powerful friends. Next, there were boats. Model ships, made of wood, filled the treasury. These ships came in various designs. Rowboats with oars and rudders. Sailboats with cabins, rigging, and fabric sails. Papyrus boats, tiny skiffs for hunting and fishing. And barges, transport ships for gods and kings. These boats all have religious significance. They would serve Tutankhamun as a fleet, carrying him and the gods through the sky. In the night and the day, this fleet would cross the heavens and the underworld. With a flotilla at his command, Tutankhamun could rule the celestial waves. Again, these model ships may not seem like much, but they do have some cool ideas behind them. Last, but not least, there was a scepter. This item is interesting because it connects Tutankhamun with the sun god. Not Ra, though. It connects him with Aten. The scepter is wood, covered with gold, and it takes the form of a club. That is the symbol Sekem, meaning power or authority. And on the surface, hieroglyphs described Tutankhamun. The scepter reads, quote, The good god, the beloved, whose face is dazzling like the Aten when it shines. The son of Amun, Nebkeparura, Tutankhamun. He who lives forever. End quote. This one is interesting. The scepter references Amun, and there are no obvious alterations or changes, so it clearly belongs to King Tutankhamun. But we still hear about the sun god, Aten. By the time Tutankhamun died, more than ten years after Akhenaten, the sun god Aten was still respectable. But his role had changed. Aten was going to the background. Now, he was secondary to Amun, the father of the king. And once again, Aten was described as the sun in a literal sense. Nothing special, nothing unique, just another form of the infinite solar god. So, the scepter gives a hint at the changing beliefs of Tutankhamun and his society. Following the death of Akhenaten, royal policy was shifting. They did not reject Aten, but they did demote him, sort of. They returned the god to his older, smaller role. It is a nifty insight that we get from a random object. These are just a few of the hundreds of items found in the treasury. They are beautiful objects, top quality art and some of them fill an important religious job. The items in the treasury all connect in various ways with the great gods of Egypt. In particular, they connect with Osiris and his eternal kingdom. Many items from the treasury are associated with Osiris in some way. A few of them do it literally, like the bed made for growing plants. Others do it more generally, 
like the boats that would carry Tutankhamun and the gods through Osiris' kingdom. And of course, the shrines protecting the king's organs would facilitate Pharaoh's resurrection. The Egyptians believed that Tutankhamun would become Osiris in the next world. So every item that helped him accomplish that was connected with the gods. With that in mind, it seems like the treasury has an overarching function. Above all, this room and its treasures connect Tutankhamun with the king of the dead. It helped the pharaoh and Osiris become one. It helped a king achieve immortality. In a way, this Perhej, the house of silver, was also a house of eternity. It was a home for the king and the gods. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Chapter 14. The Heirlooms of Akhenaten. Three thousand years ago, a royal funeral took place. Officials, priests, porters, musicians, and mourners trod a path to the Valley of the Kings. They carried the treasures of Tutankhamun, objects created in royal workshops for his burial. Or rather, objects created for a burial, but not necessarily the burial of Tutankhamun. You see, Among the fabulous treasures, some objects came from earlier generations. These heirlooms, quote-unquote, are a curious feature of the tomb. Let's explore them. In Tutankhamun's burial, a surprising number of items referenced earlier rulers. Some of these were special, high-quality treasures and mementos. Others were more mundane, jars or tools with the names of other figures. We'll start with some simple objects and work our way up. One of my favourite heirlooms, sort of, was a wine jar. This was in a storeroom, shoved into a corner. And it wasn't important necessarily, but the label on this wine jar is cool. It has a date, year 31. The last pharaoh to rule that long was Amunhotep III, who reigned 38 years approximately. So, in context, this jar of wine from year 31 probably came from a vineyard under Amunhotep III. That means, by the time Tutankhamun was buried, this jar of wine was at least 30 years old. Maybe longer, depending how you reconstruct the dates. So, Tutankhamun had a jar of rare, vintage wine in his tomb. How cool is that? The wine itself would have evaporated long before Tutankhamun's death, but that did not necessarily matter. By having the jar sealed and labelled in the tomb, the king could enjoy the essence of the wine in the next world. Tutankhamun had food and tools and clothes 
so that he could enjoy a version of these in eternity. The wine jar might physically be empty, but symbolically, it was still useful. Even if the liquid was gone, the essence could endure. And Tutankhamun could enjoy a special vintage in the kingdom of Osiris. Amunhotep III and his family show up a lot in this tomb. There was an ivory palette bearing the name of the king, and another for the princess Meket Aten, Amunhotep's granddaughter. These items were used as stationery, they hold brushes and ink for writing. So it's possible that these palettes of Amunhotep and Princess Meket Aten were genuine heirlooms, personal possessions of those individuals that wound up with Tutankhamun. We can only guess at that, but it's a cool idea. So the great king Amunhotep III is prominent in the tomb. There are other objects that I don't have time to discuss, but you get the idea. Amunhotep's wife was even more prominent than the pharaoh. The legendary Queen T has a special place in Tutankhamun's burial. T was represented with some genuinely personal objects. In the treasury, Howard Carter found a coffin. A small coffin, about 78 centimetres long, or two and a half feet. It was made of wood, covered with gold and resin. And when he opened it, Carter found another coffin inside. Then a third, and a fourth. This last coffin, just 13 centimetres long, or five inches, held a curious package. A bundle of linen, tightly wrapped and anointed with oils. What was inside? Well, inside, Carter found hair. A lock of hair, plaited, about 12 centimetres long, or 4.7 inches. The hair had an auburn colour that could be hair dye, or faded from a darker brown. Either way, the hair seems to be a lock from the head of Queen T. How can we tell? Well, the tiny coffins had inscriptions, hieroglyphs along the body, just like a real full-sized coffin. Those hieroglyphs included the cartouche of T, hereditary noble, great of praise, lady of the two lands. So according to these coffins, this plait of hair belonged to the queen. What was it doing into Tunkamon's treasury? This one is a guess. We assume that Queen T was Tutankhamun's grandmother, or maybe his great-aunt? The family tree is uncertain, but there is a good chance they were related. And as far as we can tell, T was alive around the time young Tutankhamun was born, episodes 119 and 120. If she was, perhaps T and the prince met each other. Maybe they bonded in some fashion. Perhaps T and Tutankhamun had a close relationship of sorts. That is 100% speculative. But the presence of this hair in a set of coffins is curious. No other figure has this kind of memento in the tomb. Just T. So did King Tutankhamun and his grandmother, or great-aunt, share a special bond? It's unknown, but the idea is lovely. So there are objects referencing Tutankhamun's grandparents, Amunhotep III and T. There is also an item from his uncle. Among the trinkets found in the tomb, there was a piece of wood, a handle. It seemed to be the handle or stock from a whip, as in a horse whip, something Tutankhamun could use when driving his chariot. 
The whip handle was decorated with bronze, gold, and glass, and it bore a short inscription. The whip says, quote, The king's son, overseer of the troops, Tutmos. End quote. Now, this one is interesting. There is a good chance that this Tutmos was the eldest son of Amunhotep III, the prince who should have inherited power from that king. But Prince Tutmos died before his father, and that is why Akhenaten came to power, episode 98. The point is, we seem to have an heirloom of Amunhotep III's eldest son, a man who could be Tutankhamun's uncle. The two never met, but for some reason, Tutmos's whip for driving horses was in the tomb. Curious. I have mentioned a variety of heirlooms, trinkets and treasures related to the older generations. You may have noticed that a couple of names were missing. So far, we have not discussed the heirlooms of Akhenaten or Nefer-Neferu-Aten. But the tomb of Tutankhamun does have items referencing those rulers. They are complicated, but also important. We must talk about them. So, I'll try to keep this brief. Let's dive in. In the previous chapter, I discussed a statue found in Tutankhamun's tomb. It showed the god Anubis resting on a shrine. The Anubis statue guarded the treasury, and it is one of the famous images from the king's tomb. But there is one detail I had to skip over. When Carter opened the treasury, the Anubis statue had clothes. A shawl made of linen was wrapped around the figure. This fabric was large, about 2.6 meters long, or 8.6 feet. It had good quality stitching and holes for a head and arms. The linen was a type of poncho or shirt made for wearing, so someone had wrapped Anubis in a shroud using an old shirt. That's curious. But the really interesting part is that this shirt or linen had a text, a small inscription in black ink marking one corner. Translated, this text had a date indicating its manufacture, and it had a name. Quote, Regnal Year 7, the Lord of the Two Lands, Nefer Keperu Ra, given life like Ra. End quote. The linen comes from Akhenaten, year 7 in the reign of that king. Somehow, one of Akhenaten's tunics, or ponchos, wound up in Tutankhamun's tomb, and it was used to decorate a statue of Anubis. What gives? The shirt seems to be a leftover from Akhenaten's reign. The linen was manufactured in year 7. We don't know if it belonged to Akhenaten. The shirt is quite simple, no fancy decorations or weaving. So perhaps it's just a random item that was made during that reign. Either way, someone used an Akhenaten-era shirt to wrap the statue of Anubis, which is kind of ironic considering that Akhenaten had ignored almost every god, including Anubis. But 20 years after it was made, this shirt wound up in Tutankhamun's tomb. Today, it is a curious leftover from the reign of the heretic. Besides the shirt, there are other items that probably did belong to Akhenaten himself. For instance, there was a fan, made of wood and covered with gold. It bore the cartouches of that king. The fan is expensive, high quality, so it probably came from Akhenaten's court, 
it might be one of the items used to cool that pharaoh down during his reign. Also, there was a golden pectoral, kind of a chest plate or necklace. Originally, this pectoral bore the cartouche of Akhenaten, but later somebody modified the pectoral and renamed it for Tutankhamun, but today the traces of the earlier name are still there. This pectoral is interesting because it's quite a personal item, something you would wear on your body. There's a good chance that this golden necklace originally belonged to Akhenaten. Again, there's a certain irony. This pectoral bears an image of Nut, the sky goddess. Again, that was a deity whom Akhenaten largely ignored. This pectoral probably comes from the early years of Akhenaten's reign before he went on his whole Aten is number one bender. In the first few years, Akhenaten had treated other gods with respect. Maybe this pectoral dates to that period. But 20 years later, a royal artist picked it up and modified it to suit Tutankhamun. Then it wound up in his tomb, another hand-me-down from the controversial predecessor. Finally, we have images of Nefer-Neferu-Aten, the king who ruled just before Tutankhamun. Nefer-Neferu-Aten's story is strange, but fascinating, and I have told it recently, episodes 136 to 138. Well, certain items from Tutankhamun's burial seem to belong to Nefer-Neferu-Aten. In a previous chapter, we saw how the mummy mask and the golden bands on Tutankhamun's body might have traces of an earlier name. That name could be Ankh-Keperu-Ra, beneficial for her husband, aka the name of Pharaoh Nefer-Neferu-Aten. It is possible that Tutankhamun's golden mask and some items from his mummy originally belonged to that ruler. Those are uncertain, and historians are going to be working on it for a while. Fortunately, there are other items that almost certainly belonged to Nefer-Neferu-Aten. First, we have a weapon, a wooden bow in the tomb that bore traces of this king. The bow was long, sized for an adult, and the cartouches on it had been altered. Originally, they bore the name Ankh-Keperu-Ra. That could be King Nefer-Neferu-Aten, or possibly the elusive Smenkkare. Either way, Tutankhamun seems to have inherited a bow from one of his predecessors. That's not too surprising. If the royal palace had an arsenal of weapons, it would make sense to reuse some of them rather than make new ones. The bow might not be special, but it was cool that it showed up in the tomb. More distinctive items included bracelets. There were two bracelets made of faience, and they bore the names Ankh-Keperu-Ra, the beloved of Nefer-Keperu-Ra, aka beloved of Akhenaten. Another one referred to Nefer-Neferu-Aten, effective for her husband. So there are two bracelets that definitely belonged to King Nefer-Neferu-Aten, the ruler who might be Nefertiti. So that gives a sense of Tutankhamun's connection with that ruler. Coincidentally, the same group of objects also had a bracelet for Akhenaten, Again, that reinforces the idea of Tutankhamun as the heir or successor of those rulers. 
Perhaps Tutankhamun was the son of Akhenaten and Nefertiti. We don't know for sure, but items like this might reflect that connection. Alternatively, the bracelets could just be heirlooms or leftovers. Perhaps one of the servants put them in the tomb to fill out the collection, or as a memento of the royal household. They are just bracelets, you could interpret them different ways. Either way, they are pretty, and their appearance in the tomb is cool. Thirdly, we have statues. Tutankhamun's burial held dozens of small golden statues. Some of those depicted gods, and I described them earlier. Others depicted Tutankhamun. And another group depicted a pharaoh, but probably not Tutankhamun himself. A small set of statues show up in the tomb, and they present royal imagery. In these statues, we see a pharaoh hunting on a boat, or a monarch standing on the back of a leopard. We see the king walking in processions, holding scepters and ceremonial objects. These golden statues are beautiful, but it's quite likely they do not show Tutankhamun. Let me explain. The statues don't have names, no inscriptions to identify them. But the artistic design does raise certain questions. You see, traditionally, King Tutankhamun shows up as a stereotypical male, quote-unquote. What I mean is that the artists who created his portraits, his statues, tended to use the standard figure of a male to depict the king. So usually we see Tutankhamun with broad shoulders, a narrow waist, and straight legs. The king generally is quite traditional, and that goes for his gender appearance as well. That's important, because these golden statues do not show a male. Instead, they show a figure that has distinctively female proportions. This small group of statues show wide, low hips, a narrow waist, and prominent breasts. So by the standards of ancient Egyptian art, they seem to present a ruler with stereotypically feminine features. That raises the question, who do these statues depict? Well, the obvious candidate is Nefer-Neferu-Aten, the ruler who came before Tutankhamun. It's quite possible that Nefer-Neferu-Aten commissioned a set of golden statues for their royal tomb, but for some reason, the objects never got used. Maybe they weren't finished when Nefer-Neferu-Aten died. It's all very fuzzy, but the appearance of these statues in Tutankhamun's burial is curious. Alternatively, it is possible that the statues show Akhenaten. Akhenaten was known for his androgynous or gender-bending appearance. That presentation had a religious significance, which I explored in episode 112. Long story short, King Akhenaten frequently appears in art with a body shape that has feminine attributes. Long story short, the artistic images of Akhenaten frequently include feminine attributes, quote-unquote. So, it is possible that these statues actually show that king in one of his earlier appearances. The statues had linen shrouds or wrappings around them, and some of that linen bore dates from the reign of Akhenaten. So at the very least, we know that the linen was made under that king. It is possible the statues were too, but that is speculative. The fabric could easily be reused. 
For now, the best we can say is that Tutankhamun's tomb had a set of statues that probably came from his predecessors. They might depict Neferneferu Aten, or maybe Akhenaten. Either way, it seems to be another set of heirlooms, buried with the young king. Curious. So far, the heirlooms have been artistic or decorative, like jewellery. But we do have one really important heirloom. This one is much more significant than any trinket. In fact, one of Tutankhamun's special, sacred objects was inherited from his predecessor. Earlier, I described the canopic jars of King Tutankhamun. Or at least, I described the shrine that contained the jars. Well, now we can go a bit deeper on the jars themselves. You see, Tutankhamun's canopic vessels, the objects holding his viscera, those originally belonged to King Neferneferu Aten. Tutankhamun's organs, his lungs, liver, stomach, and intestines, were removed from his body, mummified, wrapped, and placed in small coffins. These caskets are made of wood and gold, and they went into the canopic shrine that rested in the treasury. The tiny coffins are miniature versions of the pharaoh's larger, genuine coffins. And one of these coffins recently featured in the travelling exhibition Tutankhamun, Treasures of the Golden Pharaoh. So nowadays, the tiny coffins are quite well known. Chances are, you have seen one of these up close. Anyway, in the early 2000s, Egyptologists re-examined the canopic coffins of Tutankhamun. Mark Gabold of Montpellier University and James Allen of Brown University studied these items and their texts. In their examination, Allen and Gabold identified traces of earlier names. Once again, the cartouches that say Tutankhamun actually used to say something else. According to their reconstruction, the cartouches originally said, quote, Ankh-Keperu-Ra, the beloved of Wa-En-Ra. Akhenaten, Nefer Neferu Aten, effective for her husband. End quote. So Tutankhamun's canopic coffins, the sacred vessels for his organs, those came from another ruler. They were repurposed for his use. Once again, it seems that King Nefer Neferu Aten, whoever she was, did not get to use their royal treasures. Many of these objects, including sacred personal items, were kept and reused for young Tutankhamun. Strange. What does that all mean? Well, we're not sure. On the surface, it just means that King Neferneferu Aten was buried with a different set of equipment. Perhaps Neferneferu Aten commissioned a whole suite of funerary treasures, but they were unfinished when she died. Then, perhaps, Neferneferu Aten went into a tomb with a different set of goods. And those leftovers might have been reused for young Tutankhamun. That's a simple explanation, and maybe it's the correct one, but we don't know. It is also possible that, for some reason, royal officials denied Neferneferu Aten a kingly burial. Perhaps when that monarch died, the high courtiers decided to bury her as a queen, rather than a pharaoh. If that's the case, then perhaps the objects Neferneferu Aten commissioned were put into storage, and then when young Tutankhamun needed them, they took them out, changed the names, and used them in his tomb. Again, that might explain why these objects showed up in young Tutankhamun's tomb. 
We don't know for certain, this is all speculative, but the presence of these objects does raise interesting questions. That was a lot of information. My apologies. Long story short, the tomb of King Tutankhamun held many treasures, and some of those items referenced other rulers. For Egyptologists, the big question is, what do these objects mean? Is there a significance here, or is it coincidence? Broadly speaking, historians have two perspectives. On the one hand, we might assume that these are heirlooms, hand-me-downs from earlier generations. They might have gone into the tomb as mementos for King Tutankhamun's family. In this interpretation, we could assume that Tutankhamun, or his advisors, wanted to emphasize the pharaoh's connection with his ancestors. Even if those ancestors included people like Akhenaten, they were still royalty, and they had power from which Tutankhamun could benefit. So perhaps these heirlooms were intended to connect the young king with his predecessors. That might help him in the next life, and it might help him achieve his goals in eternity. That's one possible interpretation. It doesn't answer every question, but it's an option. Alternatively, we might assume that these items are leftovers. A collection of royal trinkets that had piled up in storehouses and palaces. Perhaps these items went into the tomb simply from necessity. Tutankhamun had died unexpectedly. Maybe they needed items in a rush. Or perhaps the royal palaces were getting full, too many antiques lying around. Perhaps the advisors gathered this stuff up and dumped it in the tomb. Kind of a clearing house situation. In this scenario, we might imagine that royal storehouses were full of several generations worth of pageantry. And when Tutankhamun died unexpectedly, the high officials simply raided those storehouses. They gathered whatever they could and used it for the king. That is another possible explanation. So you can look at these heirlooms in different ways. Perhaps they are meaningful, perhaps not. The interpretation varies from scholar to scholar, and we should note that these interpretations are not mutually exclusive. Perhaps some items, like Queen T's hair, were genuine heirlooms or hand-me-downs, but maybe others, like storage jars or amulets and jewellery, maybe those ones were simply convenient. In other words, Tutankhamun's tomb has a huge collection of objects, Some of those items might be sentimental, or even symbolic, but others could be garbage, quote-unquote, bric-a-brac from the royal palaces. Basically, you could probably interpret it differently depending on the object. Today, these items may seem irrelevant, but for historians they can be quite significant. Certain objects may be quite informative, and with careful study, we may get answers to some elusive questions. So the heirlooms may seem like a curiosity, but they are cool, and they are definitely worth our attention. The 
The tomb of King Tutankhamun held many treasures, but not all of those items actually belonged to the king. As historians continue to examine these objects, paying close attention to minute changes, we are starting to realise that this tomb contained a wide variety of items. Some objects belonged to King Tutankhamun, others seem to be hand-me-downs. Those might have significance in a political, religious, or symbolic sense. Others might just be coincidence, leftovers from earlier generations and royal palaces. For now, there are still many questions to be discussed, but it is an interesting aspect of the tomb. Before we go off imagining that King Tutankhamun had a huge assortment of his predecessor's goods, it is worth remembering one thing. King Tutankhamun's tomb is unusual, for multiple reasons. First of all, the tomb was intact. Most of the items were still in place, and had escaped robbery. By contrast, other tombs from other generations suffered theft and looting over the centuries. With that in mind, we can't be sure what other pharaohs took with them. It is possible that many tombs held heirlooms or hand-me-downs from earlier generations, but because they were all robbed, we simply don't have the evidence. It is possible that the heirlooms showing up in Tutankhamun's burial are not unique, but since the others don't survive, we don't quite know if they are. Additionally, the political context of Tutankhamun's death is quite distinctive. The king's reign came at a time of political uncertainty or even instability, and it is possible that his burial is the result of several different factors at once. The king died young, he died unexpectedly, and he died after a period of interesting royal policy. With that in mind, it is possible that the burial just has an unusual assortment of goods because of the unusual circumstances. We have to be careful that we don't read too much into these heirlooms. Obviously I've devoted a large portion of discussion here, because they're interesting and I think they're cool. But it's tempting to read a lot into these objects, to imagine that names like Akhenaten and Nefer-Nefru-Aten indicate some powerful connection or political circumstances. It is possible that the ancients were just trying to fill the tomb, to gather as much as they could to give the king a send-off. We can't be sure, a lot of that is speculative, so we need to be careful before leaping to conclusions. However you look at it, the collection of hand-me-downs, heirlooms, and mementos is quite remarkable. Items like the hair from Queen T, the canopic jars that used to belong to Nefer-Neferu-Aten, and even linen manufactured in the days of Akhenaten, these all give us tiny glimpses at the bustling life of the royal palace, the way an aged queen might take a cutting of her hair for a young child, or leftovers like bits of linen from royal workshops may have been gathered up just to fill out and decorate the burial. In the end, these objects are a fascinating collection of royal bric-a-brac. Whether they are politically significant or not, they do give a cool insight into the messy business of royal burials.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.